Welcome to Bible Over Brews News, End Times and Headlines. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice for Verka, and I've got Keith. All business here, nothing funny today. <laughs> I've got Gumby. Yes, I'm present. <laughs> so guys, how's it going tonight? Oh man, how is it going? I don't know. I'm doing good. Fantastic. We're going to introduce our first drink and then fly right into it. It's Petty's Irish Whiskey. Hey, by the way, I've got a, a quick question for you guys before you try this. Whiskey, with an E or no? no. It's got to have an E, right? Does it? I don't think so. That seems weird in my head. Does it? But now I'm second guessing myself. So I'm looking at your screen now. <laughs> so, whiskey has both. Yeah. See those wheels turning? <laughs> They've ground to a halt, if actually. It's, <laughs> if it's from uh, America or the UK, it has an E. If it's from Ireland... No, I'm sorry. If it's from Ireland or America, it has an E. If it's from Scotland, it doesn't. Oh, my gosh. Scottish, no. Yep. Like, I would have thought there would have been more of an Atlantic divide, maybe, but no. Like, we're just... Over here, over here, but not over there. Yeah, exactly. It's very arbitrary. <laughs> so, to the world, he was one Patrick J. O'Flattery. Flattery? Flattery. To his friends, he was Patty, and many friends he made. A kindly beloved fellow, Patty traveled pub to pub across Ireland for more than four decades, selling cork distilleries, map of Ireland whiskey the best way he knew, with free drinks and generous servings of conversation. Before long, patrons and publicans alike were clamoring for more of Paddy's whiskey, so the name was changed to honor the man himself. Paddy's namesake, whiskey, a triple distilled and aged in the oaken casks of County Cork, Ireland, was always light, balanced, and pure. A smooth, accessible whiskey for nearly a quarter millennium. And it remains just so today, whenever friends join together around the award-winning whiskey that bears Patty's name. So, mm. let's enjoy from 1779. Gentlemen, it's an old whiskey. Cheers. So smooth. That's wonderful, though. I confess to taking three sips while you're reading all that. I couldn't resist. <laughs> and it's heated. It's, <laughs> it is the compulsion. Golden colored. It's it's actually quite nice. Um, a slight amber, crystal clear because it is triple filtered. Unlike uh, unlike the bourbons, which only do a single filter. Irish whiskey does triple filter. So pros and cons, but on the pro side. It does make it incredibly smooth. Mm -hmm. So, but man, it's, it has a very slight. Hmm. Hold on. It's actually, a refreshing whiskey. Mm -hmm. I say that though. You could load that up and just mm -hmm. kill me by drinking a lot of that and not caring. It's very light. It's probably a lot of alcohol that works. It, there's not not no no burn in the in the front at all. It's uh, a little bit on the back end. Um. Definitely a uh, a lighter tone. It's it's got that a nice fresh crispness to it. Gulpable whiskey sounds like something that should be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> this would be magnificent in a Manhattan. Mm. Ooh, yeah. It's it's pretty darn good on its own, man. Yeah, or an old fashioned. Wow. Mm. 
This yeah, is I quite good. Seen old fashioned. Yeah. <laughs> so, Gumby, any, any uh, concerts coming up? No, no. I mean, we got. I'll always have some gigs coming up, but nothing on the schedule as of right now. <clears throat> Played today at the church. Hmm. Wife and I did worship. Awesome. Like any today with whiskey and a cigar. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it at church. Most right. churches don't allow that, but there might be exceptions. We'll get to that. So <laughs> sounds like a good. I mean, you know, they've had like the whole coffee in church now thing in a lot of places. Like the the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the coffee shop. I was about to say coffee bar because I'm thinking about alcohol. Um, you know, but why not drinking? I mean, it's theology on tap, right? I mean, that's kind of close, right? What What if there was cigar Bible study? <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. Now, now. If, People can't see this, but I often, I don't smoke the cigar because I would not be, my wife wouldn't go within 10 feet of me for at least a week and I can't afford that, but I love secondhand smoke. So I would still show up at cigar Bible study. Yeah. <laughs> that sounded really bad coming out. I love secondhand smoke. It's the best. Carcinogens well, for the win. <laughs> most of my cigar friends are all, most of them are religious. Yeah. So, yeah. And the great thing about a cigar, though, is that it's not like a habit, right? Like, dude, like, like once a month yeah. or far less. There's times when I'll go three, four months, not touch a single cigar. Then I'll enjoy one and then I'll go another month or three months and not touch another one. Yeah. Right. So it's it's not like it's a cigarette where it's a habit forming. You know, it's a very occasional enjoyment. It's a different thing. I, I mean, I know guys that always have a cigar in their mouth. Mm -hmm. That's not for me. Mm -mm. I mean, always. There's a cigar in their mouth all the time. I know guys who keep cigars in their mouth and don't even light it. They just chew on it. Well, that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think like the, so like the religious guy cigar thing, like, so I associate my head with like trad Catholics, which then takes my mind straight to beer balm. Not beer, I mean, beard balm, not beer balm. Beard uh, balm. Like, you know, like when you're like basically treating your beard like it's like some glamorous supermodel on your chin or you're doing all these fancy things to it. And maybe you even have handlebar mustaches, so you have mustache wax. So basically guys who like primp their beard, you know, like, I don't know, this, this, what do we think is the intersection between, because you guys aren't beard balm i mean only one of you even has a beard but your beard doesn't look like a beard balm no, beard do you super, use beard beard balm thin. okay are you kidding this <laughs> this you'll never admit this <laughs> i don't even have a quarter inch on this thing it would be a waste so what i'm getting at is like what are what do we think is the intersection between like cigar bible study and like being the like i want to be a manly man but i also want to pamper my hair like I'm a, I don't know. You know what? I, I, <laughs> there, yeah, no, I see going. what you're saying. There is that side to it for sure. Yeah. Um, but one of my, one of my best friends who's, uh, used to be a pastor, he's now more like a spiritual advisor. He's democratic. I would say he leans to the left way more than I would. Okay. Um, and he loves his cigars and whiskey. So, and he, you know, he's, yeah, I'm sure he could grow a beard out, but. He doesn't have a beard. But that does remind me of a story. One time we were smoking out at the Havana group, group of guys. Okay. And the councilman was out there from that area out in Brunswick. And 
you know, he sit, comes sits at our table and we're all smoking and having whiskey. And to your point, Keith, he's like, man, this is great. Sit around with you bunch of guys talking about religious things. And he's like, second, like, you know, he's like, and you're all Republicans. We're all on the same track. <laughs> and, you know, a few of my friends look at me and look at each <laughs> other and they're like, no one really said anything <laughs> because I knew a lot of my friends weren't. And, but there is that assumption. And I just asked, I'm like, oh, I said, you think we're all Republicans? He said, of course. You're just smoking cigars and having whiskey. You know, Democrats wouldn't do that. <laughs> That's what literally assumption. what he said. Good Lord. And he's the councilman for, I can't even, I shouldn't even say this. <laughs> I'll edit that out. <laughs> but um, yeah, there is that well, assumption. We don't know what councilman he is. So he's safe. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that reminds me that the last time I was in on a March for Life bus several years ago, um, the leader of it, he kept going around. This was fresh off of Trump's election. So I'm already like feeling a little fish out of water here. And he's like going like, here we are, this bus of great deplorables. And he's like doing this over and over. And then like one time on the way back, he just hands me this phone. And it's a reporter for like a local newspaper in like whatever suburb this is coming from. And like, she's asked me all these questions and she's like, I forget where it went to, but then I had to like whisper really quietly and be like, no, I actually didn't vote for the guy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's awesome. Yeah. The, the political stuff going on is ridiculous. We'll do a whole podcast on that again coming up because we have to do one for the, uh, <laughs> the democratic debates. Ooh. Wait, RFK is independent now, though. Who's debating him? But well, well, he's going to be got to have himself. Him. He's such a. They so Joe, so Joe Biden's just going to talk to himself for the whole time? Probably. Okay. I mean, that could be interesting. It wouldn't be hard. I mean, we've watched Does it all the time. <laughs> I was going to say it's not hard. <laughs> that was a fun little bit of uh, news. That's not officially in the news thing, but you know, RFK went independent, and that. his whole family was they excited. Him for it, the Republican. Well, no, they did. They. They denounced. They were actually happy for him going. Well, they denounced him for be running independent, mm -hmm. but they were happy he was out of the Democratic primary. Yeah, and the Republicans were like, "Oh crap!" Uh -huh. <laughs> They're like, "Yeah, he's probably not going to get shot now." So. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, mm. All right, we'll get into. That. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be a whole thing. We have to do our, our Democrat ones coming up. <clears throat> to, to wrap it up, though, the current tangent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, guy with a handlebar mustache who's clearly using mustache wax. Okay, if he's working on my car, I trust him, right? <laughs> do, you, do you trust him if he is teaching you religion? I had a guy who came to our church with <laughs> one, and a serious one. And, you know, my, I mean, my judgment was up. Right. <laughs> Just because I'm so yeah. not used to seeing that in society. Yes. That I thought it was not for real. I thought... Is this dude making fun of us? <laughs> like, or is he taking this serious? Or no, he was, that was his thing. Mm -hmm. He loved it and he groomed it. And sometimes he wore like Civil War outfits to church. <laughs> that makes more sense. Came in costume. Yep. That the, makes more the sense. The context changes, from, changes it from like fun little quirk about this person to like, what role is he playing? What is he performing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sorry to everyone out there with handlebar mustaches. We don't mean to judge you, but it just, hey, I had to ask. There was a certain Detective Poirot. So, yep. 
Do you guys do you guys ever read Agatha Christie or? I have not. Actually. Did you watch the recent movies? Uh, that Murder on the Orient Express and uh, what was the previous one? There was a one, one, one just before that. Both starring Kenneth Branagh as Perot. I've never watched any of these. <laughs> uh, the, so Agatha Christie's Perot is uh, is a. He's, it's always a great detective story. In fact, Murder on the Orient Express is one of the great detective stories. And mm. the movie was great. It was very well done. Very, I would say fairly close to what I've read of the book. I haven't read the whole book, but fairly close from what I've, I've known about it. But his character, the reason why he wears the mustache is because of the uh, injury he sustained in the war. And so to cover up his lip... Oh, mustache! Yeah, wait. So he actually like moves the handlebar like down to his lip because the left side of his lip is like he has a larger one, a full, a full size okay. one. I guess you could do whatever you want with it. You could curl that thing all around your mouth yeah. if you wanted to. And that's why he wears it is because <laughs> it covers up his his injury. What it comes down to is I'm just jealous. That's all it is. <laughs> just can't do it. Oh, it's I like, can never grow one of those. It's out. Like Princess Leia's <laughs> bun for dudes. That's 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 why mine is always so short. Yeah. yeah, it's not so great when it grows out. My wife keeps asking me to do it, and I'm like, nah, you don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of weird things, Uh-oh. this is where we start our stories for the night. The story is, since opening for business in Detroit on Labor Day weekend, Soul Tribes International has never been shy about being a purveyor of psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms. Psychedelic mushrooms for sale, its Instagram feed proclaimed on September 12th, join the tribe. But Soul Tribes also portrayed itself as more than a place to score mushrooms. Based in the former Bushnell Congregational, Congregational Church, a 60,000-square-foot red-brick white-column building built in 1939 in Detroit's northwest side. Soul Tribe markets itself as a spiritual organization that utilizes plant medicine, sound therapy, breathe deep, and ceremonial work. Psychedelics is the key. They had billboards, and then they had signs on the periphery of the church property saying... Shrooms we deliver, and a phone number. Douglas Baker, chief criminal enforcement at the city of Detroit's law department, told Religion News. After a Detroit city council member saw the advertisement and complained to police, an undercover officer attempted to purchase some of the mushrooms. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. Some of the mushrooms, according to Baker. The officer was allegedly told that of ID and $20 were all that was needed to be a member of Soul Tribes and make a purchase. So, on September 22nd, the police came back with a warrant and found about 100 pounds of mushrooms and 125 pounds of marijuana on the property. Robert Schumach, who goes by the name Shaman Shu, was shocked by the raid, which he had, in, which he had said involved more than a dozen officers, none of whom were persuaded that they were violating Soul Tribe's religious freedom. They just robbed us of our sacraments, said Chu, who said the plants were valued at over $700,000 and intended for use in therapy sessions. Besides citing his right to religious freedom, Chu believes the raid violates Proposal E, an ordinance Detroit voters passed in November 2021 intended to decriminalize psychedelics. 
The Associated Press has reported that hundreds of churches in the U.S. use ayahuasca as a sacrament, turning to the psychedelic brew for healing. But Soul Tribe's experts say is a test of just what makes psychedelics a sacrament or a church and what happens when the sacrament is up for sale. Don Latson, a journalist and the author of God, of God on Psychedelics, Tripping Across the Rubble of Old-Time Religion, said psychedelic churches are all over the map when it comes to their practices and beliefs. At Sacred Garden Church in Oakland, California, profile in Latin's book, congregants must attend eight community events and undergo a confirmation process and a health and safety screening before participating in the sacrament. In addition, a board of elders and independent council ensure church leaders behave ethically and those who oversee psychedelic ceremonies participate in rigorous training. The church does not sell sacraments. They're very cautious. They're not just a dispensary, said Latin. I differentiate that kind of a church to one that's basically you show up, you instantly join, and you're instantly buying <laughs> mushrooms. In an email, Shu said members are required to declare their spiritual belief, view a video on the freedom of religion, and pay $20 a month to become members. Shu also emphasized Soul Tribes is a ministry with sincere beliefs about the power of plant medicine. We haven't profited anything. This is my life work. I haven't made one dime. Shu said he has been appointed as a leader in the Masi tribe of Eastern Africa and that Soul Tribes is affiliated with the Oratory of Mystical Sacraments, a religious organization that has a network of members, quote, successfully exercising their right to religious freedom, unquote, through the use of psychedelic sacraments, according to its website. Shu and their other Soul Tribes affiliates have been charged with or, I'm sorry, have not been charged with any crimes. Instead, the city of Detroit filed a nu nuisance action called Soul Tribes a, quote, distribution center for unlawful control and su controlled substances that is masquerading as a church, close quote. On Wednesday, October 11th, Wayne County Circuit Court Judge Patricia Fressard authorized a temporary restraining order preventing Soul Tribes from operating as the parties await a hearing on the nuisance action. Shu, who was raised in a Christian family, told RNS he had his first experience with sacred plant medicine in Costa Rica in April 2021, an event he called transformative. The experience allowed Shu to face trauma from his experience with homelessness, sexual abuse, and the death of his eight-year-old brother. When he returned home to Detroit, Shu felt reborn. He said a feeling he wanted others to share. He soon became involved in efforts to pass the proposal e-ballot measure, which passed with 61 of the vote in November 2021. And Proposal E states the enforcement of any laws imposing criminal or civil penalties for the personal possession and therapeutic use of entheogenic plants by adults shall be the lowest law enforcement priority in the city of Detroit. But while the ordinance is intended to decriminalize the therapeutic use of entheogenic plants to the greatest extent possible, it does not explicitly permit the sale of psychedelics, nor does it ethically legalize the use or distribution of the substance. In an email to RNS, Shu said that the proposal does not allow the sale of psychedelics because it includes the use or provision of psychedelics with rumination in its definition of therapeutic use. The city cannot 
decriminalize something that's crimin- that's criminalized by the state, said Baker. So, there you go. What church should we start, boys? <laughs> <laughs> I salute their, uh, um, I guess it'd be First Amendment trolling. I'm like, which amendment is this? <laughs> that's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Hey, think about that. And there are, ayahuasca is becoming a bigger and bigger substance that's being used, not just in South America, but across uh, all of America as well, USA. Hmm. So it's very interesting. Now that does not mean it's legal, and it does not mean the import of it is legal, but there it is it has more and more of a uh, of a use. In fact, I know somebody who. You know somebody as well who uses uh, a little bit of ayahuasca from time to time, and they swear that they have seen God, and she was great. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know the story as well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, this this case demonstrates kind of the farce that is, like, defining what is religious liberty in this country, Mm -hmm. and the farce that is our whole policy about drugs or controlled substances or whatever um it, basically it's like which one do you pick i think the drug one is the easier one from a practical sense of like what could you do to you know make this so they wouldn't get you know hounded by the police or whatever and it's becoming clear of course like with marijuana we're, we're facing this right now or even very red states are passing laws legalizing recreational marijuana because it's clear that it was like mostly kind of just like discriminatory, discriminatory and even sometimes racist to criminalize. It. it was basically like, here's a taboo. There's some people in power who don't like it. There's, you know, maybe some um, majority or prominent religious bodies who are not into this. So that, that's our norm. We are going to criminalize this, even if it's not actually harmful or any more harmful than the things that are legal, like alcohol. Yeah. Alcohol is pretty harmful. Um, and likewise with psychedelics. I mean, of course, obviously laws about um, not being allowed to operate heavy machinery or cars or whatever under the influence of whatever would yeah. still apply in a world where psychedelics are legal. But are psychedelics illegal because of taboos, because of inertia, because of history? Or are they illegal because they're actually that much more dangerous than all the other things that we already do? Yeah. So what's your new denomination called? <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean yeah. That, th- those shroom religious experiences sound pretty great i i have to confess i don't get that every sunday in the pews that's for sure <laughs> no i mean that's a good point keith um you know i think some of it with the, the city's involvement or even at the state level um i think a lot of it does have to do more with regulation and i think that regulation kind of pushed upon the states from bigger corporations that lobby to have certain legislations pass. I think, you know, bottom line is competition has always been the enemy, you know, and if these things could, uh, in essence, be a competition to any pharmaceutical type of drug that they'd prefer us to be addicted to, um, they're going to crack down on it. Mm -hmm. Um, What's so ironic, though, like even with alcohol and prohibition and even marijuana, the harder they crack down, the more people find their ways to get it. Absolutely. The more it becomes, uh, 
I think, an addiction for people. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I, I, I'm still kind of like stuck on it both ways because I don't, well, if I don't want it to be another thing where people just use to mask whatever issues they need to deal with. Yeah. And, I mean, on the pharmaceutical side, it's all about the patent, right? Because whoever owns the patent owns the profit. Right. And you can't so, patent marijuana. Nope. You can't patent anything natural. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. As much there, as that irked Rockefeller. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a growing movement among therapists mm. who use microdosing to help their clients to more come to the realities of what they've been dealing with. So I'm not going to say that there isn't some place for it because there are legitimate, uh, very influential doctors that will vouch for some of its uh, healing properties in helping people open up and, and understand the things that people have been through and help them come to terms with it. So I won't say that it's always bad, but there definitely should be some kind of control because <laughs> you can abuse anything. I think there should be a, a control on cheese because there's way too much cheese <laughs> out there that are, that's causing heart issues. So <laughs> more Hershey squirts. <laughs> more chicken. We need, we need to have a public campaign for diarrhea prevention by way of cheese overconsumption. <laughs> Yeah, which actually gets to a salient point, which is like, what what is a, like a a pure control? And by by pure, I mean like, all of our drug policy is so ensconced in basically persecuting certain groups of people. Like everything we did in the seventies, eighties, nineties was basically to demonize and criti um, criminalize black people. Like that's why crack was so much more of a, a, a longer jail time for, for, you know, possessing it or distributing it was because that was considered the quote unquote black drug or even our current marijuana persecution prosecution. Like studies have found that like all races pretty much consume marijuana at similar rates, but like black people get put in prison for it at far exceeding the rate yeah you know, disproportionate rate many times what white people are, are get put in jail for so like what i'm getting at is like what is a control with the force of the law behind it that wouldn't just be used to persecute whatever group that the police or the government didn't want you know, wanted to keep down there is no there's a valid question i mean yeah. i think that's always going to change yeah there's a valid argument for that because if you look at the at the uh our penal system obviously there's some disparity right there in the numbers right so there is some a legitimate argument towards that yeah no i mean that's a good question i think that's always going to change with our culture i mean you look back especially like during women's rights when they were trying to get the right to vote and all of that that's when I think the nicotine, ironically, we're having cigars tonight, but anyways, that's when the <laughs> nicotine industry pushed so hard through like women's rights to try to get their cigarettes out there pushing. If you look at all the TV shows and all that during around that time, everybody was smoking a cigarette. And I'm everybody. talking about on family shows like Leave it to Beaver, the Andy Griffith show, stuff like that. I'm watching a lot of these older shows and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're pushing this thing hard. Hard. It actually came with uh, soldiers rations. So they push it, they promote it, like you said, and then they want to take it away. So 
I, I don't know what the answer is, but I agree with you uh, as far as the disproportionate minorities being hurt by it. Yeah. So, um, so what I'm getting with there, maybe to appeal to the libertarian in the room, is that the default should be no criminalization of consumption, distribution of drugs. Mm -hmm. And we should only put laws in place when we have a clear evidence-based problem. Okay, Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, I have a couple coworkers in the Netherlands. Sounds like a pretty baller place. It's There's a flip side to that, too. I was training one year with somebody from, Amster, from Amsterdam. We had great conversations. And I said, wait, wait. So you guys must grow up like smoking everything, right? <laughs> and he said, no, no. He's like, it's, that's very, it's a very touristy thing. He's like, honestly, us who actually live in Amsterdam, we do almost none of that. He's like, yeah, well, I smoke a little bit of weed growing up once in a while. He's like, but it's not a thing for us. He's like... It's all tourists coming in there. He's like, and the thing is, is that we don't have a drug problem. It's like, wait, how? He said, easy. You Americans always revive everybody. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's certainly the the excess, which I think points to a whole other problem that we have here, spiritually speaking, in our country and in the West in general. But yeah, that's a good point. But do I think that church is rights were violated that's a whole other question i mean right yeah i was like let's say we should get to the religious side of it because this is a uh, first amendment or a drug policy thing i feel yeah. like he did really i mean unless they had like a solid concrete evidence to really charge him with something for whatever it is they were going to charge him with i mean other than that it feels like they were just it could be it could be I, I'm a little skeptical when he said that it was worth $700,000. <laughs> that tells me that there might be a little bit of profit there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's hard to prove. It is. It is. I would say at this point, he would he needs his day in court to make sure that his rights weren't being violated. And hey, bust out your receipts and show that what you're saying is true. Show that that people are only cons are only paying for what they consume on a rumination basis, not on a profit basis. Yeah. So, the, mm. kind of the farce of religious liberty, you know, legality, um, jurisprudence, or whatever you would call it, that I was getting at was, I don't know what the exact cases are, but there is kind of this strain of thought that, like, okay, you have to like prove something's like a long-standing religion or a deeply held belief or something like that. True. But that's kind of given like judges and decisions setting these standards have kind of given them out to basically favor whatever religious belief they want to favor and disfavor whatever religious belief they don't. Mm. So there was like a pretty clear cut example. You might remember like a year or two ago, and I think it still is happening this day where we had a bunch of those um, uh, shadow docket decisions where the court, the Supreme Court would decide, oh, this execution in this state could go through and this one couldn't. A few of those were centered around um, the right of the person on death row to like a spiritual advisor or a certain spiritual practice or the presence of the spiritual advisor during the execution. And there was literally one case where they uh, accepted the appeal of the Christian who needed this spiritual accommodation and they denied the appeal of the Muslim. And they oh, were wow. very similar accommodations like it was like i want this spiritual leader beside me while i get killed by the state uh so there is just the probably his imam right yeah yeah basically yeah, yeah. so 
there in our history of deciding these cases about like, okay, this, this is a religious liberty issue. So this religion or this church gets to do this thing. It's been rife with bias. I mean, our, our erosion of what are, is the limits of what the church can do versus the state have actually changed very significantly just in the past 15, 20 years because of Christian groups bringing cases that say like things like, not just like, Oh, please respect my belief, but actually like, please, please state fund my religion, make, make, make this state uh, be required to give my religious schools money and having favorable Christians on the Supreme court being like, Oh yeah, I like that. Let me vote for it. <laughs> mm. Interesting. So I would theorize in conclusion, I would theorize that this, uh, if were this to go all the way up and, you know, even at an appeals court, because our appeals courts are full of people who decide this way, that they would decide like, oh, that's not a, a long-standing, deeply thought, held religious belief that it's something out of convenience uh, because they want to sell drugs. Yeah. But if the Catholic Church, you know, decided, hey, we have a new right of um, psychedelic mushrooms. Pope Francis is, um, you know, really pushing the boundaries here. You know, I bet, I bet they would get a favorable. You know, all those Catholics in the Supreme Court would probably. You know, they might, you could probably twist their arm on that. Yeah, let's yeah. give it a shot. Let's <laughs> start with about a 2,000 year old religion versus a brand new quote unquote denomination. Right. But what I'm saying is, and that, granted, this is very hypothetical. If the 2,000 year old religion was to make a new right gotcha. or to make a new practice, they would be that much more receptive to it than, you know, even something that was around for 50 years and kind of did it in the shadows and suddenly got caught. Well, let's take South America. South America has very ancient practices in ayahuasca, like we were talking earlier. That, so there, that is a legitimate source of a religious practice, right, in South America. Oh, yeah. And, when, and even in, in North America, too, right? Yeah. And it hasn't, I forget the Supreme Court, but it hasn't some court ruled on that and they ruled against? I didn't pull any of the material. I, I wish you remember that, yeah. But, but I believe you're right. Yeah. Like that definitely has come up in, in, even if it wasn't that exact case that's come up where, okay, there's a, a practice done by, you know, tribes who have, you know, maybe been here for thousands of years yeah. or at least several hundred before we got here Ooh, and they're denied because it's not convenient to our legal, moral, cultural norms of this, you know, conquering society that's yeah. come in. Way before colonization. Yeah. 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 I, I think the state just has jurisdiction. It's a jurisdiction issue. What they did to the, these people here at this church cannot be done to native lands, which probably do the same thing, right? Tribes, you know, and how they practice whatever customs they have. You know, they're using all kind of good stuff. Touching on the ayahuasca. Right. Yeah. So, but our states can't go in, you know, with their raids and the FBI and blah, 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 and do whatever they want to them because we don't have jurisdiction. It's their, their land. I would actually hope not with everything they've been through. So, so <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of slimy, though. What what I don't like about it, first of all, they don't have a formal charge, do they? You said it was a nuisance law. Mm -hmm. So it's like they were reaching for things already. And how long did this undercover cop really have to go through to get, like, substantial evidence? Yeah. To, you know, how long did he have to stay undercover doing that? And so lesson learned, I think these people need to vet whatever members they have coming in a little yeah. better. Yeah. You just uncover the third rail, which is just making up a different charge. So you can be like, oh, I'm not trampling the religious liberty. They were a nuisance or something. That's like, um, I've been totally tangential thing, but I've been watching these um, First Amendment auditors on YouTube where people go in with a camera in a public place and then everybody questions because they have a camera and like a bunch of them call the police. Okay. And then like, 
the cops who actually know rights of people know that you can film in public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones that don't, who really don't, and who are full of hubris, might actually try to put handcuffs on you. <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, they end up getting released or let go. Well, those but, all get rejected. Yeah. But, I mean, well, just well, getting handcuffs on you and getting in jail for a night can F up your life. Oh, pretty yeah. big. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Stay in journalism. As I mentioned, I do find <laughs> It seems like when they do that, they are just being annoying. But oh yeah, I mean that's 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 part and parcel of like if you're gonna be a First Amendment auditor, you have to learn how to be annoying. Oh like a, a, gosh, yeah. a totally play unannoying First Amendment auditor would not be effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can we pause right there. We're gonna do a word from our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to train Muay Thai? Perhaps there's no gyms near you. Perhaps you work odd hours. Perhaps, like a few of us, you don't like germs. Whichever way it goes, you can train online with some of the best instructors from around the country, either live or in class with other students. Living Muay Thai gives you the chance to do all of this and much more. So jump into live classes and on demand right now. LivingMuayThai.com it's, it's, It definitely it definitely opens up a can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> Or a can of shrooms. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. And <laughs> Interesting. It, it begs all kinds of questions. I mean, and there's, even in our, our native peoples here, it's still unjust. I, you probably don't know this. I didn't know this until recently. Did you know that if you are a, one of the indigenous tribes here in the United States, it's the only group in the country it has to apply continually for blood tests to prove they're indigenous. Interesting. Wow. You, yeah. Like if you want to talk about a, a little bit of uh but a little bit of racism there. Like they literally to keep their identity have to keep applying and then keep taking blood tests with the federal government. With the federal government to prove their status here. And once once they have a test that comes back, you know, say inconclusive. They can actually deny you your indigenous rights. Well, Oof. yeah. How messed up is that? Yeah, no, I mean that. That's a whole other topic there. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, not even sure what to say about that. But that's definitely one to explore in a future podcast because that's. I didn't find out that I was. What was I researching? I was researching something recently on indigenous peoples. And I don't even remember why. Might have been with my kids in their schoolwork. <laughs> so, and I, we were going through. I think it was something uh, indigenous for what for their schoolwork. And uh, I pulled up a couple of videos of indigenous people speaking about living here in the United States. And that video was oh my! It was no, number one. It was it was eye opening. Two, it was heartbreaking. You know, because we're talking about groups of people who lived here before colonization Mm -hmm. and yet they get denied rights left and right constantly Mm. just because they're like oh yeah it was inconclusive so you you we can't give you like free college like we can't you know we get to get we're gonna push you off this land now right so it's because the second that it's inconclusive they can take the land back yep (laughs) you know colonialism rebranded yeah really yeah, absolutely. Like we uh, look, what's happening now in uh, Lahaina, 
right? Hawaii. Mm -hmm. All the areas that had the wildfires now. And like all the properties that are being bought up by these oligarchs from here. And the residents don't have rights anymore. Well, they have no, they have no land. So now people are buying it up. They give everybody a flat 700 bucks. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. And now the state's coming and say, well, we're going to make this land historical. So now the state owns these lands under a historical, uh, I forget what they call it, like some kind of a law. Uh, but the biggest landowners over there in that area were not even their own residents anymore. Right. It was, uh, uh, I know Bezos has land there. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the guy? Larry Ellison from Oracle. Yep. He owns the most land and Oprah's right behind him. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody dropped, somebody dropped the rock too, but he, there probably is an argument there. However, he also is Samoan, so he also has a slight indigenous, indigenous right there too. The rock so. whatever he wants. Oh, Dwayne Johnson? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is Samoan, so he does have a right to, you know, indigenous property, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but- the, that argument could go both ways. And, and Puerto Rico is the same thing. I mean, my great grandmother, my mom showed me a picture and she, they were just Indian. Tayano Indians. You know, and and now it's not even their identity is being slowly wiped away. Yeah. So. This is why we have to take on the oligarchs. <laughs> Corporation, the mili uh -huh. military industrial corporation. Well, I am, I am launching to help uh, fight against oligarchs. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> I am actually, and this is the first time this podcast has heard about this, I think. Um, I am launching a cooperative corporation. Um, and the cooperative corporation, is, it's the Muay Men Academy. Um, it's based specifically around the art of Muay Thai. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're launching a full cooperative corporation campaign. Um, I'm working with a an association out of Kent, Ohio, that works with the Kent, Kent State University. Yeah. And with an individual out of Cleveland owns, who also is based around cooperative corporations, um, to create a system, a system I'm building right now with them, so that that way we can spread the art and each teacher that comes in can be an owner operator within the organization that we're building. So nice. Yeah. And it's, it's our, uh, quiet middle finger to, to the oligarchs <laughs> so that we can build this out. And it's a legitimate system. And we're working with an organization that I helped build living Muay Thai. Um, so that that way we have an educational Institute that will work with the cooperative corporation and help all of these people establish schools that are profitable so they're not forced to work like daytime jobs and stuff because they're not making enough for their schools to benefit their communities for, you know, fitness and self-defense. And so, but that's what we're doing right now. So if you go to the MuiManAcademy.com, that's actually a cooperative corporation that we're launching a full campaign for to build out and bring a bunch of owner operators and to give them a system that I know works because I built it myself. It's called Muay Thai Bata. It's a conditioning system built specifically for Muay Thai. And uh, we've seen, we saw a 300% increase in our clientele when we introduced that system. Wow. And I'm now introducing it at another place over in uh, Hudson, Ohio. And uh, we're only two weeks out right there, but uh, but we hope to launch this all across the country. It's a three-phase plan, 
and the third phase of the plan, which if we get the funding, we can start right now. But uh, we're looking to build the first model here in Ohio so that that way other schools can come in and model what we're doing and build out their own. Mm. And unlike these giant corporations like fast food restaurants, we'll leave them all we leave all their names out of it, but whether you have to pay exponentially large affiliate fees, you wouldn't be paying those out each time. We simply take a little bit of the funds from the tuition, allowing them to collect their their the ninety percent of their funds. So not only do they make more money, but they can make bring in a lot more clientele, and then there's cross uh, there's more more we're building into it for them to build more funds inside of their schools. So, but that's coming. That's coming. We'll, nice. we'll announce more later on, but shameless plug, <laughs> <laughs> shameless plug, but shameless plug to make people better and make communities better. Yeah. I'm so. all about giving the middle finger to the, <laughs> to the big man. It's yeah. nice when the affiliates goals are aligned yeah. with the broader organizations. Like, Oh, you get more clients. Like that's good. Yeah. Like so many times, like different, you know, franchising type structures will be totally like, I just want to see like a McDonald's franchising structure that like makes incentivizes everyone to actually keep the ice cream machine operational. Like there's gotta be a way people like ice cream. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So more to come on that, but it's, it's something that's that, that too much geek. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I have a passion for and it's something that I'm, I'm trying to help build because I know there's a ton of really great instructors out there that just need the help because they're working one to two jobs outside of teaching just, just to keep their schools operational. And they're legitimately trying to build more health and more fitness across the country, build their communities up. So these will be community-based gyms, and that's what we're really building out right now. So it's going to be really cool when it comes. Mm. So, uh, Keith, if you want to pass those drinks around. Absolutely. And we'll get to our next story mm -hmm. after we introduce this. So this, and we'll go back a few slides. Jack Daniels Country Cocktails Lynchburg Lemonade. The refreshingly sweet taste of this hard lemonade is a tasty, sure to satisfy taste buds during the hot summer months, which this is the end. So unfortunately, I, I bought this a couple months ago to celebrate the end of summer, but uh we're going to enjoy it now. This sweet and sour Jack staple is bound for the picnic cooler. Jack Daniels Country Cocktails are the perfect way to enjoy your favorite Jack Daniels beverage in a 10 convenient ounces. Inspired by over 150 years of premium craft tradition, Country Cocktails are a refreshing new take on the Jack Daniels flavors. It's 4.8 uh, ABV, and it is, yeah, it's 10 fluid ounces. Look at that. So, guys, let's crack these suckers open. Cheer. Cheers. And uh, it has that classic lemonade look to it, which is really cool. I'm pouring mine into my glass right now. And, uh, ooh, the nose on this thing is pure soda lemonade. Man, it smells good. I'm trying to think of what, like, so some Ooh, of the wow. other it is so smooth. lemonade drinks can get that kind of, like, sticky feeling in your mouth. Yeah. And this is, like, a little closer to, like, like, 
not the seltzer water. Like it's got the flavor of the lemonade, but it doesn't have. It's like it goes down much smoother than that. It doesn't leave you with that like yeah, 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 yeah. Like that yeah. kind of feeling in your mouth that would make you really not want to talk on a podcast after drinking it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's lighter. It's light, but it still has that nice lemon flavor to it. I love lemon. Mm. Mm. I know this makes me basic, but I love wow, summer good. shandies. Oh, I love summer like, shandies. It's so good. Yeah. It's perfect. Line and Kugel is one of my favorites. Yes. Yeah. I think they, it's the original, but it's still great. I mean. Yeah. And this is great. It's this I could definitely see with uh, with your vegetarian hot dog and your Cleveland kraut. <laughs> A favorite of mine, by the way. A true story. So when I was a technician, I reinstalled Cleveland kraut. <laughs> the original place downtown in their warehouse they got uh our back then when i was working for a very specific telecommunications company uh, <laughs> uh they got our stuff and it was a contractor that did, did the install and so i got the trouble call i went out there it was installed terribly unfortunately and he said can there's any way you could fix this I reinstalled everything for them. It worked perfectly afterwards. He was so happy. He gave me like three packets of different sauerkrauts. Oh my gosh. And it was phenomenal. And I, that's when I got hooked on it. I mean, mm. Cleveland Kraut has like the most amazing sauerkraut I've ever had. It's just phenomenal. Stop. Oh, it's so hungry. good. It, my, my favorite is still their Nar Nar. It reminds me of a cross between sauerkraut and kimchi. And, oh, oh, it's so oh, good. Wow. Oh, it's so good. We just, maybe we should, instead of drinking one time, we should just be eating sauerkraut straight <laughs> out of the jar. Right, <laughs> right. That, that one right there. They have a, they have a whiskey sauerkraut, <laughs> which sounds as good as, which it tastes as good as it sounds. And then they also have, uh, again, they have a multitude of different flavors. Uh, they have a dill one that's amazing. They now make their own kimchi version. Oh, it's, yeah, again, Cleveland sauerkraut. I get no incentive for telling you this they're amazing <laughs> my company could pay me a lot less if i was regularly paid in cleveland crowd i'll tell you what <laughs> yeah it's fantastic um so speaking of making lemons into lemonade <laughs> that brings us to the nice synod way nice segue on synodality <laughs> because i gotta tell you there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there Oh, I like conspiracies. Oh, there's so much. There's so much. I have heard an exponential amount of mostly garbage coming out of a lot of the TLM, the traditional Latin mass people. And here's the thing. I love the Latin mass, so I'm not trying to put a, uh, a sour spin on that. I, I see what you did. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually love... I go to a Latin mass. I enjoy the Latin mass. Uh, my kids love the culture behind it. They go with me and they love going through uh, the Latin missiles because there's a side-by-side -side with English and Latin. They, they love the culture of it. So honestly, we thoroughly enjoy the Latin mass. So I'm not trying to say, being somebody who goes to a Latin mass every Sunday, I'm not trying to say I don't like the Latin mass. I love the Latin mass. What I am trying to say is there's a lot of garbage coming out from the, the far right side of that community where they're trying to disparage anything that isn't Latin mass because the Novus Ordo is a legitimate mass. It's just as spiritual. It's just as beautiful. So I'm, I, I'm tired of them uh, damning anything that isn't in Latin. 
That's that's not healthy. Um, my my wife, for example, she gets frustrated by the Latin mass. So my wife, um, there are times when she will go to an English mass while we go to the Latin mass, and that's okay, right? Because that she enjoys it in English. I think we need to have both masses for those people who don't enjoy it. So I have no problem with there being two kinds of mass. It's fantastic, right? I mean, the original mass 2,000 years ago was in Greek, right? So, <laughs> you know, and I've been to those, and those are beautiful. Um, in fact, St. Mary's down here at the end of the street does a beautiful uh, Gregorian uh, mass in Greek. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, our, our parish, Mary Queen of Peace, does a beautiful Latin mass, right? I really thoroughly enjoy it. Um, but I think we need to stop in the, the Catholic community. We need to stop demonizing the Novus Ordo. It's there for a reason. There's a lot of people, again, like my wife and like, and like other members of our parish who go to the English mass because they get lost in the Latin. There are some people that, that just can't do it. And so we need to have both masses. And I think that it is completely legitimate and completely cool. And so we need to stop damning the English mass. So so are the, I mean, I need some more context. I'm not Catholic, but are the, you know, the trads, the Latin side, wherever, uh, that's where the conspiracies are stemming from? Yeah, it, it's really the rad trads, rad that, trads. as we call them. <laughs> so what is the, like, the prominent conspiracy that they're pushing. So uh, a lot of them push it out saying that they, that we're trying to limit the mass and trying to limit the power of the Catholic Church by making it in English. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Again, we're making it more accessible. It has nothing to do with uh, limiting the mass. It has everything to do with making it more accessible. And that's I think that's really the problem. Um, Mary Queen of Peace, I think, was doing a great job because they had two English masses in the morning on Sundays and then one Latin mass, right? So, again, you could pick and choose. If you didn't want to go, go, go to a Latin mass, you didn't have to, right? They did a great job on that. Father Brown did a fantastic job on that, making everything accessible. Um, but there is a subgroup, the Rad Trads, that literally have been known to walk into an English mass and during the mass openly talk about how it is is not legitimate oh my in mass <laughs> <laughs> and they're the people that cause the problem <laughs> that's that's arrogance that's complete and utter arrogance you know i mean you, not only are you disparaging the, the evangelization of the church you are actually putting a bad taste in the mouth to the latin mass by doing that and so they're actually working in opposition in ways that bring a bad name to the church. Which is how you kind of come to the synod of synodality, right? And that's I was gonna say I thought you're I thought you were gonna talk about some conspiracies that come along with the uh Rad track contingent that aren't necessarily just about what language. Oh, is. please. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Keith. I'm gonna need oh, no, I'm gonna sure. continue. <laughs> no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, actually, I, I mean well, when it comes to, I probably should didn't find the synod first, right? Okay. What is the synod on synodality? So the synod on synodality, <laughs> honestly, and here's the thing about this, and this is why I really don't like 
um, what's happening because a whole bunch of people are talking about it and it is not complete. And that's the problem that I see with what's happening is that everybody is disparaging what is happening without seeing the conclusion of what's happening. <laughs> so it's counterintuitive, right? Um, there has been a lot of talk back and forth about how they're trying to uh, change uh, theology and how they're trying to bring changes to the church that go against Catholic teaching. And they're doing that before the hearings have even completed, even even halfway through. I mean, it's wait, so, wait, wait, let's back up though. So oh, hearings. Right. So first off, what's well, a synod? Oh, a synod. Before we get to synod on synod, oh, what's a okay, synod? So a, a synod is when is when a series of of bishops and lay people and cardinals will sit down and go over talks about evangelization and topics of the church and ways to expand those thought processes. So, so is this something that happens within the Catholic Church every so often or something? Yes, there's okay. been a, a bunch of them. There's been right. a bunch of them <laughs> over the years, for 2,000 years. The first one's actually in the Bible. The first one actually happens uh, right with the apostles. Yeah. Well, so there's, because that was considered, actually, isn't that called like the Council of Jerusalem traditionally? Originally, yeah. So like there's councils, like we have like there's Vatican councils. II was a council. Yep. And as I was hearing, and tell me if this is wrong or not, because I was just listening to a podcast for somebody, like some reporter described it. He was like, coming out of Vatican II, which was this big effort to like figure out how does the church appeal to modern folks. And this is where we actually moved from the Latin mass being the norm to the vernacular mass being the norm, uh, among many other things in Vatican II. But coming out of Vatican II, there was this effort to actually meet regularly. Um, and so having smaller meetings where they talk about church issues and try to come to an understanding, like maybe even outputting a, a final document at the end of this that might contribute to the implementation of Vatican II. And so that's where you have these synods. I don't remember how many exactly have been done since Vatican II, but as I understand the one, the current one, which is the synod on synodality, which yeah. is a weird thing to say, but um, <laughs> is, is the fourth is, one in Francis's term as yeah. Pope, right? Yeah. The fourth just under his? Yeah. So there was, I forget what all of them are, but there was the one that was about um, communion um, for uh, divorced and remarried Catholics. There was the one about the Amazon, the Amazonian Catholics and the, um, you know, just crisis of not having priests to minister to them. Right. Um, that was the one where the, uh, the statue of, uh, you know, as they call it, Pachamama or the, the, the uh, fertility symbol that got thrown in the river by that one guy who's now become a darling of conservative podcasts. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also this one, the, that's the next question of course is it's called the synod on synodality. Yep. What does that even mean? It sounds redundant. It sounds well, too so, cute by half well, in some ways. <laughs> tell you what, tell you what, I, I normally will not resort to mainstream news because I, they will create angst anger and hurt on purpose just to sell papers or clicks. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> However, I will give, and this is really, really rare. Um, I will actually give Fox news a tiny, tiny bit of credit here because well, really we got to ring the bell, ring the bell <laughs> <laughs> because they actually had a positive article instead Fox of news yeah yeah instead of causing their normal fear and angst they actually did have a positive article so i'll uh, i'll read this really quick and uh 
It says, Bishop Robert Barron is asking Catholics to take the Pope at his word that the Vatican's upcoming synod on synodality is an advisory council, not a democratic process to change doctrine. The Catholics Express exploded with speculation and commentary after the Vatican published. Nope, one second. I have to turn my other electronics down. There we go. <laughs> And commentary after the Vatican published a list of international delegates for the final phase of the Synod on Synodality, a worldwide meeting of Catholic leaders that promises to set the tone of the Church for years to come. Baron of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester, 63, was announced Friday as a U.S. delegate to the Synod. Barron was nominated by fellow members of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, alongside four others, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, Bishop Daniel Flores, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, and Archbishop Timothy Broglio. In addition to the USCCB's own international appointments, there are several American delegates handpicked by Pope Francis himself. Some of them are prominent advocates for changing long-established social teaching in the Catholic Church. Notably included was Father James Martin, an American Jesuit priest known primarily for his work challenging the Catholic Church to reconsider its teaching on homosexual relationships and transgenderism. I'm assuming by that you didn't know that. Oh, no, I knew, I knew he was on there. I was oh, okay. doing the little cheering crowd thing. Okay. <laughs> Barron said he was not concerned about ideological slants at the meeting, pointing to conservative prelates also directly appointed by the Pope, such as Bishop Stefan Oster of Germany. I think, quote, I think the American delegation, if you look at the whole thing, kind of balances out ide ideologically. So I think that is what the Pope seems to like, unquote. Barron told Fox News D Digital in an exclusive interview. Barron continued, quote, He is something of the Jesuit seminar table. Let's get a lot of voices around the table. Let's all have a big debate about something. So that's what I see in at least a preliminary look at the lineup, close quote. The 16th Ordinary General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops is set to bring together cardinals, bishops, priests, religious brothers-in-arms, nuns, and laity from around the world in October to discuss the Catholic Church in the modern day and how best to move forward as a global community. The meeting will reconvene a year later in October 2024 to draft a final document of suggestions on church governance for consideration by the Pope. Pope Francis will be free to adapt, critique, or outright reject any of the final document suggestions. Quote, Once the approval of the members has been obtained, the final document of the assembly is presented to the Roman pontiff, who decides on its publication. If it is expressly approved by the Roman pontiff, the final document participants in the ordinary magisterium of the successor of Peter. Close quote. The Synod's stated purpose of fostering greater cooperation and global community among Catholics worldwide has led to be informally dubbed the Synod on Synodality. However, Pope Francis has said that the Synod should not be characterized as a parliament for demanding rights. He instead called it a journey in accordance with the Spirit. Barron said that diverse opinions were being recruited to make the Synod as representative of the current Church as possible. The Pope has said it over and over and over again in the lead up to the Synod, that the Synod is not a parliament, not a democratic process. We're not voting on doctrine, Barron told Fox News Digital.
It's much more about strategy. A lot of people, at least in the West, I think, feel alienated from the church for different reasons, and there are better strategies we can adopt to reach out to them and re-engage them, and so on. I think that what we're talking about, so I'll take the Pope at his word, I don't think we're discussing doctrine. While Bishop Barron's Episcopal office primarily concerns his parishes in Minnesota, his public influence stretches around the world via his books, videos, radio shows, and documentaries with his Word on Fire ministries. Barron, who rejects labels such as progressive or conservative to describe his theology and ministry, has championed a return to Catholic orthodoxy through education and engagement. He previously spent a month in Rome for the synodal process and kept minutes for his English language group. Quote, I was pretty involved in the whole process, and I liked it. It was a lot of work, Barron told Fox News Digital. And you're with the Pope every day. He was there pretty much every day. Close quote. Barron says his biggest desire for the culmination of the process is a more compelling plan for evangelization in the modern age, which he believes has been the ultimate goal of every pope since the Vatican Council, sometimes referred to as Vatican II. Barron has previously asserted that following following the conclusion of the Second Vatican Council in 1965, many clergy and laity misunderstood or disregarded the actual reforms of the council and shifted their focus from theology to charity in a bid to appeal to those outside the church. Quote, the church was often reduced to ethics and more precisely to social justice. Nothing wrong with ethics or or social justice, but it was kind of reductionism, and the doctrinal element was underplayed, Barron said in a previous interview with Fox News Digital. A caving into the very relativistic culture held sway. So that's been a problem for a long time. Close quote. Barron said he believes the synod on synodality is only the latest step in sharpening the church's ability to carry out its evangelization mission. He said, I think coming out of Vatican II, that's been the clear goal of the popes, including Francis, how do we make our message more compelling to people? And if they're feeling alienated from the church, well, that's a problem. We have to find a way to reach out to them and re-engage them for the sake of the mission. Again, I am, I am Pope Francis guy here. He said from the beginning, a church that goes out from itself, he wants a church that's not stuck in the sacristy, but goes into the hall, gets a joyful message of the gospel. He continued, I talked about how the oil of priestly ordination should not just be stuck on the vestments of the priest, but should be kind of how flowing out from them into the world. That's what I think is great. And the synod helps us that it more effectively, and I think it will accomplish its goal. Close quote. The Senate will convene for its meeting in October of this year. The Council will adjourn and reconvene in October 24 for its final conference. Mm. There you go. Hey, there's so much to unpack in that. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. So I see the Senate as a good thing because it's very well balanced. I mean, people will turn to people and say, oh, no. Father James Martin is in there. The church is going gay, right? <laughs> and that's really the cry that so many people have had, except 
if you look at all the people invited, it's very well balanced. You have conservatives, you have liberals, you have everybody represented on the Synod. And I think that's on purpose because everybody, our goal is to reach everybody, right? And if you don't include everybody, then somebody doesn't have a voice. It almost, I mean, and this is me kind of being objective here because I'm not Catholic and I don't, you know, know a lot of the traditions and all of that. But it almost feels like as I'm reading this, it's like I'm hearing from, uh, if I can describe it corporately, like they're trying to rebrand themselves to see how they can become more marketable to the people out there again. So I don't know, like he made one statement that says, you know, talking about reductionism and how not that social justice is bad, no, but it was kind of reductionistic and it's, uh, I forgot how he worded it. I don't want to take what he said out of context there, but I guess my, my thought on that is like, how can you separate it all from, doesn't it all flow from the doctrine to begin with? I don't think he's trying to separate it. I think there's a greater emphasis on making the whole bigger than the sum of its parts. Because, like he's saying, coming out of Vatican II, there was so much emphasis on one or two things, from mostly from specific church leaders, yeah. that they forgot to embrace the whole, and instead they embraced some of its parts. Because... Coming out of Vatican II, the documents are really, really profound. Um, a couple of my friends um, who are now becoming Catholic, um, they said the same thing. They read the documents for themselves. And they said, this is, these documents are profound. They're amazing. I don't understand how the church has not embraced the full capacity of what they were trying to accomplish in Vatican II. I guess that's what I'm trying to wrap my mind around, though. But these doctrines out of Vatican II and, all, and however many of these have happened since... I don't know how far back, but this is an actual scripture that you base your doctrine off, right? Well, so here's the thing. You know, I always tell people. That's it is, I, it's, it's not. It is based in scripture, but it's also based in relation. And take the catechism. For but it's example. not actual doctrine is what I'm saying. Out of Vatican II, there was a lot of doctrine. Yeah. There was doctrine included. Right. I get that. So yeah. you write things out of doctrine. But it's not scripture itself is what I'm trying to say, right? Well, scripture itself is a doctrine. Like scripture, scripture doesn't exist without tradition. And that's why I always say, tell people when they say, well, scripture is better than tradition. Well, no, scripture is tradition because without tradition, there's no scripture. <laughs> right. But it's one of the very arguments we could hold against the Protestant church and why we have so many denominations, right? Because we have these different... Mm -hmm doctrines and these different traditions and these different bylaws and these different things that come out of our point of view of how we interpret doctrine at the very source. Well, I don't really agree with that. So now I'm going to do this. So I'm going to create our own bylaws based off how I interpret that. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the whole big picture of how all of this comes about. Cause I could see you're always going to have people who detract from any point of view or yeah. not agree. Well on the Catholic side, that's the reason why we have a Pope and a Magisterium and why it's always been that way. You know, Peter was the first Pope. Uh, Paul worked closely in conjunction with that. I guess you'd call him the first great evangelist. Um, and if you look at, at what they accomplished, even in, in, within, in their lifetime, they already had the first 
idea, the first model of what they were doing. And the church has always been the Catholic church has always been the same ever since. In fact, the teachings have never really changed. Um, the, the interpretation to culture has changed because culture changes and you have to be able to minister what you're do, what you're trying to teach to culture. And so that changes profoundly from age to age. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at the, at the first century compared to now, the culture has changed so drastically, it's alien to us. And so you have to be able to reinterpret that from generation to generation. So that's, yeah. that's really what these are trying to accomplish. I feel like the synods aren't entirely different than a lot of the meetings of leadership that a lot of Protestant denominations have. So like... Our general you, councils, yeah. Yeah, general, you know, like, okay, the, the Southern Baptists got together and elected a leader, or, you know, the Presbyterians got together and revised their policy on LGBTQ clergy, for instance. So we we hear a lot of those where they're basically, okay, in our context of whatever we think the truth of Christianity is, whether we have like scripture and tradition or scripture or whatever, like what do we say is the implementation of this as applied to this specific topic? Um, now, in the case of the synod on synodality, like to back up a little bit on like what it means to say on synodality. So as I was, as I was looking at this, like I have a, a plenty of things to disagree about Bishop Barron, but I think he's, He's only maybe a little bit projecting what he wants out of the council versus what's or the synod versus what's actually happening. Because I have heard from other sources who are like basically like, hey, Pope Francis is basically trying to stick the conservatives and the liberals and everybody in between in a room and getting them to agree on something. Um, so like in the case of the U.S., you know, Bishop Barron, one of the conservatives, I know he rejects that label, but I'm sorry, he's a conservative, um, got appointed by the United States bishop. So they got to send their people to it. But then Pope Francis also got to pick other people. So he picked James Martin to balance them out. Meanwhile, in the case of the German bishops, who are much more liberal, the Germans presumably sent their liberals over there. And Pope Francis actually picked some conservatives out of Germany to join them. Um, so to get back a little bit, though, I wanted to confirm that was your understanding of the synod on synodality yeah. is actually about like who's in the room as we discern what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. Is that like an accurate representation of what the Pope is trying to do? More or oh, less. No one said the Holy less. Spirit here. Well, actually he did. <laughs> actually he did. So in, in another article, um, he specifically, so to Pope Francis's credit, he specifically said the Holy Spirit will lead this synod. And he is actually leading every talk and closing every talk with moments of silence and prayer because he said, I want everybody to understand is the leading of the spirit inside of the synod. Not what we want, not what we don't want. And yeah, and that's, that's his own words, which uh, again, I find I'm, I'm a fan of Pope Francis. I actually think he's great. Um, I think he really is trying to steer the church in the right direction. Um, and, and most of his detractors, they point to certain specific things that he has done. They say, look, that's, it goes against the church. I would actually quote, uh, father Casey on this. If you go and you read watch his YouTube page, most people that are rejecting things that Pope Francis brings forward were bad catechumens. Because if you actually listen to Pope Francis, he's echoing documents that have been established for often hundreds of years He's actually re-echoing those teachings. He's not disparaging them. He's not going against them. He's actually re-echoing them. So I would say most of them are bad catechumens who actually don't know their own Catholic teaching. 
Pope Francis, in all of the documents he's brought forward, has been very consistent in what the church actually teaches. So, as I say, I see you ruminating over there. Oh, yeah. I was trying to remember. <laughs> I was ruminating on three different things, and I can't think, think of which one to go back to. Go back to. So, um, I guess what I kind of to finish up on that point about, like, it's not... So, okay. There's... So, getting back, way back to the rad trad conspiracies about the synod is there has been a tendency to say that it is about taking an opportunity potentially to redefine some serious sticking points in doctrine or dogma. Uh, key ones are, you know, inclusion of LGBTQ people. Like, what does that mean? Like what um, a kind of a basic one that like some folks have wanted to go forward is to offer a blessing for LGBTQ couples that isn't equivalent to like a sacramental marriage. Um, and then uh, involvement of women. So part of what Pope Francis has done with the synodality is this is the first time we had like lay women at the, in the, at the table. So they have like discussion tables. And now instead of it just being a bunch of bishops, it'll be like, you know, nine bishops, a lay person and a female lay person. <laughs> so well, somebody's got to go. <laughs> grab the coffee yeah so oh. <laughs> <laughs> um so there like has been some thinking that one of the outputs could be in the most optimistic case is some actual shift however small in one of these two could it be a a permanent diaconate for women could it be some new office that Francis makes up that women can do? Like I kind of like you think of like what he did with the catechist a few years ago, where he's like, "Hey, we have an official church office of catechist. It's not, um, it's not a, a ordained position, but women can be in it. So, hey, well, you're more rights for women." Um, so you feel like it's kind of just throwing them a bone? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, but there. So histo historically, there have been female deacons in the church before. Oh yeah, which is kind of why it's kind of dumb that there haven't there isn't now. Yeah, so it, it, that would not be a new thing. Like traditionally, that was a position in the church previously. So, um, it was I say newer, but we're talking about two thousand years of history. Uh, yeah, it was a bit newer that it was completely all male. There, there have been positions as deacons in the church for ladies. So I mean that's. That wouldn't be a new thing. It'd actually be echoing back to an earlier thing. Yeah. So, so there's a certain sense in which, you know, getting these people together to talk about big issues could lead to something like this. Absolutely. But, yeah. um, you know, I was I was listening to the Jesuitical podcast. It's a podcast put on by American Magazine, magazine a Jesuit magazine, uh, and they were talking to uh, a, a Vatican uh, journalist, Gerard O'Connell. And he was, he's been around these people for a long time and he was trying to describe a lot of actually what Barron is trying to describe here, which is like getting the opposing voices in a room, getting to find them to find common ground, like talking more about how as much as everybody's talking about what doctrine could change, that Pope Francis has his eyes on this goal of breaking through the polarization. And I think it's a pipe dream. I will say we have really damning proof of God's existence if Pope Francis pulls it off. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not the shroud, right? Yeah, yeah, know. that's not the shroud of Turin. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I actually, I'm actually doing in uh, 
because uh, I, I help lead the uh, adult and teen Bible study for uh, Mary Queen of Peace on Sunday mornings. And we're doing, we do uh, Brant, Brant, Brant Petrie's uh, Sunday Readings Explained, which are just fantastic. Brant Petrie is just awesome. Um, and then I, I've been going over uh, Marian Apparitions uh, afterwards because we have time after that. Um, and uh, it's fun because there there is so much evidence for the supernatural because that whole talk came about because I tried to disprove <laughs> Marian Apparitions and then I ran into a ton of peer review content and uh, that was a, a fun journey. <laughs> <laughs> that led to our our previous our first Marian Apparitions podcast yeah, with, with Father Brown and uh and so I've been going over some of that research and stuff on Sunday mornings. when that happens and you try to disprove something oh, and then you start researching and you're like, oh, crap. Right. I'm just going to pretend like I never talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, they, to your point, I mean, I, I, I agree. It may be kind of a pipe dream, but nevertheless, I still think it's part of the essential work I, I think that any church should do. Um, to make some change to, uh, you know, to respond to whatever the times are happening around us. Yeah. Uh, CMA did one two years ago, their biggest one. And the CMA used to be AG, right? It used to just be AG. Then they branched off in the sixties, I think because of tongues or whatever and became a CMA. Well, <clears throat> a couple of things on the docket. Uh, the two big things on the docket were, women's role in the church should they be ordained and at the time i think it was like no nah, you know let's just it's it should just be the way that it is it's you know scriptural it's biblical blah 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 blah, blah. but the conversation was had right well today women are allowed to be ordained in the cma and we finally caught up to the ag and other denominations that allow women literally go through the same process that every man has to jump through to have the same results and achievements mm -hmm. at the end. And so I think that's progress. I don't think that's a bad thing. The other thing that was on the docket had more to do with, uh, I don't know if it was theological, but you guys know who Ravi Zacharias was? Yep. Okay. Yep. The man was like the Jeffrey Epstein of... <laughs> the Protestant world and no one knew it. Right. Great. Def great definition. Yeah. I mean, he was just so renowned in his books and in his teachings, his theology. Nobody, I mean, even though we'll he did it. debates, you knew you were going to lose when you debated him, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera books. And you studied his stuff. And I, it, I studied know. his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I still have a couple of his books at home. Yeah. Kingdom of the cults is one of my favorite ones. But anyways, Lo and behold, he was living like a double life. Yep. And this shook the CMA. It shook a larger part of the Protestant world, all who revered him. And it's like, we need to talk about this. You know, we really need to talk about this. And so, and you know, I think a lot of good came out of that and doing that. And, and there's been good change. It happened. I think it opened up... Uh, a lot of people's eyes even more to trafficking and what that means. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a lot of good came out of it. Yeah. So hopefully the same could be said for this. 
I'm hopeful. What, I was going to ask you, what are some of the specific issues on the table with that? They're still kind of defining some of that. And that's the thing. So there's a series of dubias, and we'll spend a different episode on that because the dubias take forever to explain. There's, I think it was five, right? Five dubias. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so we'll do a separate podcast on that because that's going to take an hour to go through those. Um, Got you. So they haven't but, even but defined. It is, it is those. The key ones in the mind questions. are LGBTQ inclusion. Okay. So that's on the docket? Inclusion. Okay. I mean, at least in some sense. like They're, they're often... So I participate in one of the the listening or talking sessions at the parish level and they ask they ask very general questions about like what do you feel about the scripture or like what do you feel is important for we, the local church I did or, as well yeah and and then like at least in ours like everybody held their peace and answered the questions as was for 45 minutes and then we broke out into like when are we going to treat gay people better? <laughs> when are we going to treat women better? Um, so those issues are, and they have already come up in discussions. Like the discussions are confidential at this point, but people have, you know, leaks and stuff. Um, but I kind of branching off of that. I, so I, I kind of talked about the example where Pope Francis and the liberals agree with Bishop Barron here on what the trajectory of the Senate is. I wanted to throw out my conspiracy theory version. Oh, here where you they go. Diverge. Here you go. Okay. So Bishop Barron, he doesn't like labels, as I said, but he is a conservative. He throws out dog whistles to a conservative audience. He's, you know, as the article mentioned, he's much more than the bishop of the diocese of Winona, Winona Rochester, wherever the hell Winona Rochester is. I'm sorry if you're in Winona Rochester, but nobody knows where the <laughs> hell that is. Um, he is a YouTube celebrity priest and then became a YouTube celebrity auxiliary bishop and bishop. So he is a YouTube celebrity. I, I, I will say I, I love his content. I really do. Um, uh, and I know a lot of people don't agree with that. But he's one of the very few people that deals with the philosophic side. And I, I love philosophy. That's one thing. I, I, I love philosophy because it, it creates the constructs that we think from. And what very few priests do is very few priests or speakers in general uh, – especially in, in uh, theology, speak from a philosophic side. So one thing he does very effectively is speak on the philosophic side. And that's why I enjoy him so much. But mm -hmm. go, ahead, go ahead. So, okay. So yeah. I'm just establishing he's a conservative. He's also an institutionalist. I think he legitimately believes in the institution. But he knows a lot of the, the, the people who follow his little Pied Piper you know, thing, to be totally reductive about, about his followers, um, are questioning the institutions of the church. They are the ones who might be ripe to defect to something more traditionalist, especially in the face of something like Pope Francis. So my conspiracy says that he's projecting his wishes for the synod to, to project this confidence that the institution is okay, that his followers can still stay behind him in terms of their, their politics uh, and not feel uncomfortable in the church. So, okay, one side of the diversion. Second side of the diversion. So we've got Pope Francis here. He is talking about bringing the left and the right, the conservatives and the liberals of the church together. He's doing this in the context, of course, of you know people attending church a lot less, of people um, you know questioning the how, the how the church has treated you know these different groups of people like LGBTQ folks and women. Um, he's also doing this in the face of another synod uh, in Germany 
the synodal way, which is a synod that's just inside of Germany that is very, very squarely heading on these issues to the point where German bishops have already started offering blessings for gay couples. Um, and the, the Germans started their own listening process with a lay group. So they already had way more lay and women participation than the Vatican could ever imagine for their synod. Um, after a very real reckoning about their sex abuse crisis and the findings out of that. So the, the German bishops are saying, we're moving forward these things. We're not waiting for the church to catch up. So what I'm saying here is Pope Francis could be saying, hey, this is about us talking to each other and kind of coming to common ground. But as that article mentioned, he ultimately has final say in what the final document is. So he could take all these things into consideration and he can say, we're plowing straight ahead with blessings um, for gay couples and women deacons or hell, even women priests. So who knows? Judging by what he's previously pronounced, I doubt that, but I would see him moving forward with more ministries towards that. Mm -hmm. I could definitely see him. And I'm thinking, I'm not saying I'd believe because in the conspiracy let's face theory. It, <laughs> he, he has said over and over again, the church is for everybody, regardless of where you are, where you sit, what you, how you believe we have something for you, right? So over and over again, he has said that. Um, so, But he has always spoke from a traditional viewpoint, despite what everybody says. He has always spoke from a very traditional viewpoint. Um, he just conveys it, I think, in a better way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, he, he conveys it. And, and I will, again, refer back to uh, Father Casey when he says he conveys it in a way that's South American. He's from Argentina. So he is very more people-based. Everyone from that side of the world is more people-based. So that's where he's going to speak from. He's not going to speak from the top. He's going to speak from the blue-collar guy, right? That's where his thoughts will be, and that's where his, his moments will be. Uh, this is the same Pope that, instead of taking first class, sold his tickets and then rode coach, right? That walked with the people instead of taking a limousine, right? So he's very much based towards the average man. So I would say that, yeah, he, he's definitely he's definitely guided by his heart for mercy rather than an institution. And I, I'm, again, being a traditionalist, but still with the average man in mind. Mm -hmm. So you don't trust Baron, do you? Oh, not Baron, of course not. I mean, he's <laughs> he's had. Um, I mean, actually, you can you can check out. Um, there's a really good article in the Black Catholic Messenger that we've had folks on here before with that um uh nate yeah uh, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah um there's a very good article about um some of bishop Barron's sophistry about um the you know marxist origins of black lives matter and going into this weird you know theories that i think just don't line up with how race racial relations have worked post 2020 yeah um and i i feel like increasingly every time you hear bishop Barron doing something that's supposedly ecumenical, it's really about like, let me interview this person from the far right. <laughs> like, let, let me have him on my YouTube channel. Yeah. We're bringing Nate back on. Nate's actually. Oh, really? Oh yeah. When is that? Yeah. He's, uh, he, he and I uh, remain in contact. Nice. And, yeah, yeah. And he's excited about coming back on. Sweet. So, yeah. Well, make sure I want to be there. Okay. <laughs> Nate's great. <laughs> oh, he's great. I love him. Um, but uh, real, big shout out to the to the Black Catholic Messenger. Black Catholic Messenger is an excellent article. Yeah, um, and that article is um, well, his whole news service is great. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and it's it's expanded. A lot. He's got a ton of writers on there, and it's yeah. very good. Yeah, he's great. Um, 
But uh, what did I say? I guess my question was, okay, mm-hmm. so the status quo pre-synod is you've got Pope Francis going wherever he's going. It's making some people uncomfortable, some people who have a lot of power and a lot of money. You've got the American bishops going right. Uh, you've got the German bishops going left. Everybody's talking about, like, say, rumors of schism. It's getting that dramatic. Where, what do you think's the realistic scenario where we end up post-Synod? Do these tensions improve, or do these folks keep going in their directions? Knowing Pope Francis from what he's done so far, and he's been in his position for a decade now, right? Um, and having gone through his writings, he's going to find the best middle ground. I mean, and I'm, I'm going by everything he's done previously. I think he's going to find the best middle ground for people to meet on and then be able to ruminate from there. That's what I see him doing fo- going forward. My predictions. My predictions are he's going to find the best middle ground. I would not, I would not doubt that he's going to create uh, committees and create uh, talking points and create maybe even annual councils to make sure that both sides are talking. So that's where I, I see this going. It's about no, keeping the dialogue just, open. Yeah. No, just knowing what Pope Francis has done so far, that's where I, that's where I see him going. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, cause like, you, you know, when, when you said pipe dream, I'm thinking like, Oh, it, it kind of is. I mean, we're <laughs> dealing with people. Yeah. Uh, cause to think that every, you know, like on the Protestant side to think that every now CMA church is going to allow women to just be, pastor is is unrealistic right even though they can and you know depending on how hard they push there's still going to be people who reject that you know and yep i i think he's going to do just enough that keeps the german bishops hanging on by a thread and like okay we'll continue dialogue i think the american bishops are going to keep fighting the culture wars uh, and I think they're only going to pick up steam. We'll find out. You mean going more right? <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll find out. I would say I, I would agree with that. I think society seems to kind of be pushing that way yeah. in general. Yeah. Yeah. I often categorize, um, and this, I don't mean anything mean to Pope Francis by this, but I think of him in my head as the Joe Biden of popes, um, where Oh, that's not. In terms of, especially, nice. especially when he had a trifecta. He talks way better than that. <laughs> no, it's, in terms of, of policy, Joe Biden, in many areas, has gone further than anybody has gone before. But it's also, like, not nearly enough <laughs> in terms of the, to the groups that are disaffected. Uh, and when you think about how the church operates, you think about every time one of these events passes and nothing really gets done for marginalized groups, like a whole generation dies. Like, Mm. you know, women who feel like they have no voice go their whole lives and feel like they have no voice. It's like, it's like being, um, uh, a Cleveland Indians guardians fan. Like, Oh, you know, I bet they'll win, win just one championship in my life. And now we're 75 years without a world championship. (laughs) And a lot of people have lived and died and have never seen them hoist that flag. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Biden is a career politician, so he's only going to go as far as the uh, the conglomerates let him go. He's got to go farther than Biden, especially if Biden's on a bike, man. <laughs> <laughs> you mean trying to stay on the bike? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's gonna be interesting, and I. I will not disagree about that. It will definitely be interesting. <laughs> I mean, surely the Pope knows, though. I mean, there's not everyone's going to follow whatever they're whatever they come out with. Yeah, every church is going to kind of make their own decision at the local level, aren't? Yeah, they? yeah. And and I really do think that what you're going to see come out of this is just new avenues of open discourse. I really do think that you're going to see more committees. You're going to see more, maybe even more. Um, public forums on that you know where you have to where they're opening it up to where the lady gets to engage with these because we want a voice right so i could definitely see that coming out of this that that i would agree is probably one of the most lasting things if nothing else happens is once you crack the door open the lady participating in these discussions you can't really close that door again uh and at some point you know there is going to be a difference where if you once had a 12 men at a table and now you have 11 men and one woman, like that is a different conversation technically. <laughs> it, it is. It really is. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You immediately know what you can't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bathroom humor out the window. <laughs> Just imagine all those crusty old bishops in their bathroom humor. <laughs> Well, by the time robes. <laughs> I'll do it later. You know, they might have more in common with women than you think in that respect. You know, it's not easy to a lot of yeah, women's clothing isn't that easy to undo in the back. By the time you get to that age, I'm sure you have a lot more inside jokes. Right. <laughs> they won't see that. <laughs> awesome. Well, that was cool. Uh Keith, any last thoughts? Oh gosh, last thoughts. Um, I think I said them all. I mean, the synod is interesting. I think yeah. the idealistic terms we've just discussed are somewhat doomed. That speak that speaks probably more to my dim perspective on the current trajectory of human society than hopefully reality. Um, I respect the game Pope Francis plays, though. I don't mean to call it a game in a in a pejorative or trivializing sense but um he is an expert maneuver um the only thing that i think could enhance his maneuvers in this area is some magic mushrooms (laughs) 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 gumby uh well being the only non-catholic here commenting on that i am optimistic about the potential for just dialoguing uh, with people with different points of view, man. Uh, it, there's just not going to be any change if you can't at least have that safe space to begin with. Agreed. So, yeah, agreed. So I'm hopeful for that, and I will pray for the outcome of that. Well, thank you. And nothing taboo over. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and and we will update all of you on future Bible over brews and news on the progression of the Synod, as well as these really weird uh, denominations coming out. (laughs) Um, Please look for us on social media. Uh, Contribute to uh, our beverages so that we can continue to power through these. (laughs) Let us resort to mushrooms, please. (laughs) We have more guests coming on, which is awesome. We have a couple of really cool ones coming up. Again, I was a little 
It's a little occupied the last couple of weeks, so I didn't get as much in as I wanted to. But we have really cool projects coming up for the podcast. And uh, yeah, Godspeed. Good night.